Hello and welcome to the Family Law Podcast brought to you by Pump Court Chambers. Each week we look at relevant issues concerning family law and once a month we provide a how-to or nutshell guide to a particular topic. I'm your host Tara Lyons and today I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague Geoffrey Kelly who's going to be giving a nutshell guide to the court's approach to unilateral assets. Jeffy's reputation is founded on many years of experience in resolving family finance issues, uh, dealing with complex uh, cases, including Schedule 1 cases, property disputes between cohabitees and disputes regarding children. He's ranked as a leading junior in both Chambers and Partners and Legal 500. Uh, Jeffrey, hello. Hello, Tara. It's lovely to have you on our podcast and thank you very much for giving us this nutshell guide to unilateral assets. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Well, just taking it back to basics, Geoffrey, what, what is a unilateral asset? Uh, this arises from the difference in approach between that taken by Lord Nichols in Miller and Miller, and that taken by Baroness Hale, Lord Mance, and Lord Hoffman in Miller and Miller. Effectively, what Lord Nichols said was that matrimonial property was all property acquired during the marriage, otherwise than by inheritance or gift. Yes. Uh, the position taken by uh, Baroness Hale was slightly different because she said that there was scope um, for people to, or a spouse, to build up during the course of the marriage an asset um, from his or her earnings. And what she said is this, uh, there's still scope for one party to acquire and retain separate property which is not automatically to be shared equally between them. The nature and source of the property and the way in which the couple have run their lives may be taken into account in deciding how it should be shared. And then she gave the example of a, a genuine dual career family where both parties have worked and had assets have been pooled for the benefit of the family, but other assets have not, and they've been maintained separately. Uh, and she said that, of course, those assets which have been pooled, of course, those are subject to the sharing principle and those have to be shared equally. But she went on to say that it might be fair to leave undisturbed whatever additional surplus each has accumulated during his or her working life. And so that's what's come to be known as unilateral assets. And it's to be distinguished from sort of pre-matrimonial, non-matrimonial assets. These are really assets that have been built up during the course of the marriage. But one party says, it's because of me I built up these assets, we've treated them separately, and they should be treated separately uh, for the purposes of the matrimonial causes that when we're dividing assets. Right. So it's, it's not only the source of the assets that, that, that's important, it's also the treatment of it by the parties during the marriage. Absolutely. And okay. if they've been pulled, if they've been put into a joint account, then they lose their 
their unilateral as, uh, aspect. Okay. And, and so if, if a party is able to uh, demonstrate that um, perhaps in a dual income case uh, that uh, they had accumulated um, various savings which they'd kept very separately, they, they, they treated, both parties had treated them very much as that party's uh, separate wealth. Um, how does the court then treat those assets? Is it a case of being able to ring fence them all together, or is there a different approach that the court takes? Ah, just because of just because they they meet that that sort of broad definition of a unilateral asset doesn't mean that they're going to be considered to be a unilateral asset, and. Um, the reality is, is up until the case of Sharp and Sharp, uh, yes. pretty much everyone in the matrimonial finance field took Lord Nichols's view, which was that uh, assets built up by parties during the course of their marriage were going to be shared equally, whether or not they were kept separately, whether or not they were the result of one person's endeavours, whether or not they were the result of joint endeavours. But in Sharp and Sharp, we had... Uh, a case which really had all the elements which could lead a court to say, well, we're going to treat unilateral assets separately. And what were they? In, uh, what? in, in Sharp and Sharp, um, what the facts of Sharp and Sharp was that this was a, effectively a short, childless marriage uh, between parties who each maintain their own career during the course of the marriage with the husband earning about £100,000 a year as a basic salary and plus some bonus, and the wife earning about £100,000 a year plus some bonus. But the distinguishing factor for the wife was that during the course of the marriage, uh, her bonuses amount to some £10.5 million because she was very successful in trading in uh, uh, fuel Right, yeah, very um, successful. Yeah, on the financial markets. And, and what was argued on behalf of the wife was that in circumstances where there is a short, childless marriage and the parties have maintained effectively some element of separate economy, then the excess accumulated by the wife, the, the earnings that she has accumulated over those years, which she has kept separate um, from the husband, should be treated as a unilateral asset, i.e. a non-matrimonial asset, which is not subject to the sharing principle. And, and she ran that at first instance in front of um, the late Mr. Justice Singer. And uh, she went down in flames and um, Justice Singer took a, rejected that approach, said that the court's approach really was that as argued on behalf of the husband, which is that everything earned during the course of the marriage is an asset, and that was the approach taken yeah. by most people at the family bar at that particular stage, and uh, said, no, um, everything goes into the pot, and we divided equally subject to some concessions uh, made by the husband and about non-matrimonial assets. And so the wife lost at first instance, and then she appealed to the Court of Appeal. And um, Lord Justice McFarlane uh, 
as he then was, uh, allowed the wife's appeal and said, um, this is that, that the uh, ratio to be taken from Miller and Miller is to be found in the majority of Baroness Hale, Lord Mance and Lord Hoffman, which is that there is scope uh, to build up assets which are not subject to the sharing principle. Uh, those are non-matrimonial assets. And in this particular case, because it was a short, childless marriage, in fact, the marriage only lasted some, from cohabitation to the divorce petition was some six years, um, short, childless marriage, uh, the Court of Appeal took the view that the assets built up by the wife from her earnings out, uh, from, from her earnings were to be treated as uh, non-matrimonial unilateral assets. Right. And so presumably, well, given the scale of her, um, her wealth, uh, in the case of Sharp and Sharp, presumably there were no needs-based arguments that, that might have um, trumped such an argument. But, but, but if we're dealing with a, a case where needs might come into it, how do, how do the courts reconcile the Sharp and Sharp approach with the needs argument? Uh, the reality is that the unilateral assets argument will only ever work where there is more than sufficient assets to meet everyone's needs. Okay. And, and in Sharp and Sharp, in fact, um, having treated the wife's, um, the savings that have been built up by the wife through her bonuses as a non-matrimonial asset, the court went on to award or the husband some proportion of those um, to meet his needs on the basis of three factors. And those were identified by uh, uh, Lord Justice McFarlane as follows. Uh, the standard of living enjoyed during the marriage, the need for a modest capital fund in order to live in the property that he is to retain, and some share in the assets held by the wife. Right. And, and so he, he, he made inroads into those unilateral assets in order to make a fair order having identified those three factors um, and so effectively the husband uh, had a total award of two million pounds which in circumstances where he could go back to work or he could work um, that was felt sufficient to meet his needs and uh, i've often have had sharp and sharp cited to me um, by a party who wants to uh, argue that a contribution made to the family home that is unmatched in a dual income uh, marriage uh, should be recognised. Um, but, but it's right, isn't it, Geoffrey, that in Sharp and Sharp, in fact, there was an absolutely equal sharing of the two properties that they owned together, wasn't there? Uh, there was. What was interesting is that uh, when they first met, husband effectively had nothing. The wife had some savings. And they then uh, started living together in rented property. And then they bought their first matrimonial home in joint names for just over a million pounds. But um, Mrs. Sharp put all the money in. Yes. Um, later on, uh, they found another property they wished to buy and they bought that in joint names and all the money again came from Mr. Sharp and uh, 
what the Court of Appeal held uh, was that uh, these were both matrimonial properties, and notwithstanding the fact that all the money emanated from Mrs. Sharp, uh, they were to be shared equally. And then the husband got a little bit more to take into account those those three, because that that was then the marital uh, acquiesce, as it were. Yeah. Husband then got a little bit more to take into account those three factors that I've identified. Yeah. So that really reinforces, doesn't it, that the, the, the key point with these unilateral assets cases is the treatment of it, because the argument, I guess, is when it goes into the family home, it's a very clear demonstration of wanting to pool your assets. Yeah, once, I mean, that goes back to K&L. Um, once you have, if you have a non-matrimonial asset and you invested in a matrimonial home, then it loses its non-matrimonial aspect. And so that's what happened in K&L, or that was what was identified uh, by uh, Lord Justice Wilson, as he then was in K&L. And in fact, in the lottery case with, with uh, Mr. Justice Mostyn, where the wife won the lottery, Mr. Justice Mostyn held that the money that she had won was a non-matrimonial asset, but then she bought a house with it. She lived there with the husband. It didn't transmuted into being a matrimonial asset yes. that was s and ag wasn't it yeah that's all yeah. and and so following sharp and sharp are we going to see an ink because sharp and sharp i think was only a few was it 2017 um uh singer's decision was in november 2015 the court of appeals decision uh was 13th of June 2017. Yeah, but because do you think following on from Sharp and Sharp, we're going to see uh, an increase in the number of cases in which people are seek to argue uh, there's a unilateral asset, and in practice, how successful do you think those arguments are going to be in your average family court? The if one goes back to Miller and Miller, uh, there was the argument advanced that even in a, that if you have a long lasting marriage where there are dual careers and neither party has any uh, claim under the uh, compensation principle or the needs principle, that the that unilateral assets could be recognized in a long marriage case. Um, and and uh, in Sharp and Sharp, Lord Justice McFarlane effectively said, no, this principle of unilateral assets is going to be closely confined to right. short, childless, dual career marriages. And then in a more recent case, uh, XW and XH, which was decided by the Court of Appeal on the 18th of December 2019, um, uh, Lord Justice Moylan uh, effectively, again, tried to keep it very closely confined to short, childless, uh, dual career marriages. Right. And so um, I, I, I think it's unlikely, but of course it'll all be fact specific. Yes. That unless you've got a short, childless, dual career marriage, that uh, an argument about unilateral assets will, will succeed. And but but if you are in one of those 
cases where where you have got those factors present um, and and you're seeking to to run that uh, to FDR or trial what what tips or advice would would you have um, for practitioners in uh, how they should approach that that, that sort of case um, well you just have to go through the tick list uh, are there children if there are, uh, you're, you're probably unlikely to succeed in the argument. Is it a short marriage? Now, in, in Sharp and Sharp, the, the, the cohabitation began in 2007. They separated in, uh, the petition was uh, served in December 2013. So at most, yeah. it was a six-year marriage. Six year. Yeah. And then we've got XW and XH, which was an eight-year uh, marriage. And I got the impression from the uh, decision of the Court of Appeal that they didn't think that eight years really qualified as a short marriage. So, you know, is it a short marriage? Is it childless? Is it a short marriage? Have you got two careers, two yes. proper careers where neither party has made any sacrifice for the other's career? If one party has, for instance, moved from one career to another, one part of the country to another, and taken up a lesser salary, then you know you might say it, it probably doesn't fall within no. the category of um, a true dual career family. And then you've got to have the separation of finances. You know, one of the things that happened in Sharp and Sharp was the wife kept her money separate, and when they went out to eat, you know, they quite often split the bill. You know, she okay. would pay for it because she had so much more money. She would, I mean, she was very generous with the husband, but this was in the nature of, of gifts. She bought him three Aston Martins. Um, but rather than showing wow. a pool of resources, it just showed that she was generous with her gift giving. Um, and, oh. and so you just need to make sure you satisfy all the criteria. And in particular, um, the one where the evidence might be a little bit in contention is uh you know was it really kept separate and how you ran your financial lives during the course of the marriage and just finally jeff if if you are on the side of the party wanting to assert that there are unilateral assets um apart from sharp and sharp are there any other cases or case law that that we should have in mind well, I think sharp and sharp is the high point for someone who wishes to argue in favour of unilateral assets. Yes. And then um, it was argued in IX and IY in front of uh, Mr. Justice Williams, but the argument didn't succeed. And it was argued in front of Mr. Justice Baker uh, in case of XW and XH, where it didn't succeed. And then it was expanded upon in the in the Court of Appeal, where um, Lord Justice Moylan uh, really emphasised the closely constrained nature of unilateral assets because what they want to avoid is a reintroduction of discrimination between the wage earner or the money earner and the person who doesn't earn so much money because if it's a partnership of equals and your contributions during the course of the marriage are equal then you know the fact that one person earns more money than the other could be seen as undermining the sort of anti-discrimination uh, approach taken by the British court or the English courts rather. Yes and so if you're if you're acting for the person resisting uh, a, a claim of unilateral assets 
would you just point to to how closely com confined um, Lord Justice McFarlane uh, stated that that um, unilateral assets should be or run? Yes. Yeah, you would do. And you would rely on, I mean, also in Charman and Charman, number four, um, the Court of Appeal considered it and effectively, they, they said in practical terms, it's not going to make a huge amount of difference. And you sort of rely on Charman and Charman in the more recent case of XW and XH. And, and, and what you really want to bang home is this element of discrimination. Yes. Jeff, that has been really helpful and really informative. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Please tune in to listen to our next podcast, where I'll be joined by Mark Dubbery from Pump Court Chambers. Uh, as ever, if anyone has any ideas for further topic areas, Mark and I would love to hear from you. And you can find our email addresses on the Pump Court website, www.pumpcourtchambers.com. Thanks again, Jeff.